Here comes another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I am your host, Matt Herman. This week, you know, we're set to walk that knife edge between glory and disaster as we set up behind our respective microphones. By our, I mean with me this week for conversation about a match day chock full of close games is Terry DeFellin. Be honest with me, you still smarting a little bit from that somewhat unfortunate result from Dortmund that didn't go your way? Which one? <laughs> oh, oh, just the one from Sunday. The one that just happened right before we started talking. The one that just happened? Yeah, I uh, I am smarting a little bit. I'm trying to be a little bit more objective as I get older, Matt. But yeah, you know, it's still a little bit raw. I would really like someone to explain to me the handball rule, but I don't suppose anybody's going to be able to do that. Oh, we might try and tease a few things out before the podcast comes to the end. Yeah, like we said, it was a match day full of close games. Almost all the games were either one goal margins or, in fact, draws. No goal margins. We will be back in just a moment to talk a whole mess about that foosball from the weekend. You can get in touch with us anytime you want. Podcast at TalkingFoosball.com. We love good reviews. Any where you can leave them for us on all those podcast platforms. If you really want to help us keep the show afloat, support us on Patreon. Lots of great timeless content over there. We'll take you all the way through six decades of Bundesliga history, and we'll do it for just, you know, a few bucks a month. All right, here comes part one of Talking Foosball. We're going to start with the big stuff, with the top of the table stuff. Last time we spoke, Terry D, Bayern Nullfield Leverkusen, they had just taken down FC Bayern München. They had opened up a five-point gap at the top of the Bundesliga table. Things were very dramatic at that moment. And truthfully, things kept going in that direction. Last weekend, Leverkusen won, Bayern lost. It became an eight-point gap. It was a real sort of meltdown moment for FC Bayern. We'll get to that in just a moment. And it looked, you know, for all the world this weekend, like uh, that gap might grow to 10 points. Leverkusen were 2-1 winners over Mainz on Friday. That was a record 33rd straight game unbeaten for a Bundesliga team, unbeaten record. Bayern went deep into uh, injury time before they got the winner that they needed from Harry Kane to get three points at home to Leipzig. So in a way, you might think this would be an unequivocally good spot for Leverkusen to be in. Were it not for a move that came out of that sort of Bayern meltdown moment in the middle of the week, you know, Bayern announced they would be parting ways with head coach Thomas Tuchel at the end of the season, which I think for a lot of Bayern fans, and from what I understand, quite a few Bayern players, is a welcome development. Uh, It's not such a welcome development, however, for Leverkusen, because their own coach, Xabi Alonso, a guy who we've talked about quite a lot this season, not only in the context of winning a lot of games with Leverkusen, but also what his future might hold, now has another incredibly high-profile destination to which he is invariably going to be linked. It's not just Liverpool Football Club who would like to get him to sign to be their coach next season. It's now very much in play that Bayern München are sort of, you know, going to attempt to woo him over the next couple of months. Terry, I know that was a lot to chew on. (laughs) I said a lot there. I don't know how many minutes or seconds or whatever I just talked, but it was a lot. How did you view this week from the perspective of these top two teams? I mean, all in all, the gap's the same as it was a week ago, but it feels like some things are coming dislodged. The story has moved forward a little bit. 
we've talked about this on the Sound of Football podcast and took the view that we felt that Tuchel would certainly leave at the end of the season. It's not a surprise that a decision has been made, an announcement was made at this point, because one, I feel that the club probably feels like it needed to do something decisive. It needed to make a gesture to address what has happened, to acknowledge that it's been a poor few weeks for them, no matter how Thomas Tuchel may phrase it, it has been a poor few weeks for them, and that they wanted to maybe try and draw a line in the sand and and move on, focus the minds at the club and in the dressing room that, you know, it's okay, guys, there's going to be changes in the summer, so let's just knuckle down, focus on the task at hand and try and see if we can salvage something from this season, and which, of course, they're buying. And they are still perhaps only the second best team in the Bundesliga, but perhaps they are the best team in the Bundesliga. They're one or the other. There's a good chance that they can still recover that deficit and recover that gap. I also suspect rather impishly that although I don't believe that this is the only or indeed the primary reason why Bayern made this announcement, but I suspect that it will have crossed their mind. It won't be lost on them that there is a possibility that it could destabilise Leverkusen somewhat in knowing that there's a good chance that their coach could be leaving and indeed could be leaving to the very team that they are currently trying to historically best over the course of a season. And that strikes me as a very Bayern move and the kind of thing that they would do. You know, normally what they try and do is sign Xabi Alonso or at least try and sign, you know, I don't know, Nathan Teller maybe. But they've not gone that far. They can't go that far. And so they've done this, I think. So again, I don't want to trash Bayern. I mean, I don't think that that was uppermost in their mind. But I'm sure that fact won't be lost on them. No, no. And and I agree that this does feel like something that Bayern would have, an eventuality they would have considered when making this move. But I agree that it doesn't feel like the main motivation. I feel like the main motivation was to sort of head off a few conversations about Tuchel's future or to bring some clarity there. And in fact, you know, Tuchel himself was pretty, pretty unhappy with the fact that he still was asked questions about his future after defeating Leipzig on the weekend, in which, you know, I think a reporter asked him something like, well, what does this mean for the rest of the season? He was kind of like, it means nothing. Like, I'm leaving at the end of the season. We're still eight points behind. Can we just stop talking about this entire subject, which kind of means that whatever they were trying to resolve didn't get resolved in that respect. And I know that the entire concept of having something of a lame duck coach it can become its own narrative within the media who are always looking for something to write about when it comes to a team like Bayern. How do you see this move, however, this move of getting rid of Thomas Tuchel? Roughly, I mean, he's going to play out the rest of the season and be in charge for the rest of the season, barring some kind of strange eventuality. This is really getting rid of him, or at least announcing that he's leaving, about a year after he came. This comes after about a year and a half of Julian Nagelsmann and not really all that much time of, you know, Hansi Flick in the grand scheme of things, not really all that much time of Niko Kovac in the grand scheme of things. Do you think that there's going to be any wariness in the mind of either Xavi Alonso or any other sort of high profile coach who might be interested in this job that the Bayern job has turned into something much less attractive and much less stable than it used to be. Never mind the fact that it looks like they are not going to win the league this year. And that sort of might devalue Bayern's prestige in the mind of a potential employee. But also the fact that Bayern are beginning to hire and fire like clubs that have earned themselves a reputation for that sort of behavior. They're no better than Chelsea at this point. 
No, I mean, at the moment, their record is probably worse than Real Madrid when you consider that that's the European super club that you associate with hiring and firing or certainly, shall we say, rotating their coaches. And they seem to have configured their club to really be like that. But they've been hanging on to Ancelotti now for, what is it, three seasons in his most recent stint? And no reason why it wouldn't be a fourth, actually. But Bayern seem to have lost that air of stability and conservativeness, small c conservativeness that comes with them that I think, you know, I think in many ways is kind of reassuring about them. You know, that kind of old traditional Bayern just doesn't feel like there's all got a whiff of faded glory about it at the moment anyway, just for these few weeks while they're not very good. But I think that the other thing to think about is obviously Max Abel is due to join the club as sporting director. I think in the summertime, is that happening? So obviously at that point, You would like to think, again, I mentioned in what I said earlier about drawing lines underneath things. I think that that will be like, we've got our new CEO, we've got our new sporting director, now we can start to think and behave more like Bayern Munich should do. But I do think that if they do want Xabi Alonso, and I believe that they probably do, I'd be surprised if they didn't, that given that they will be in direct competition with Liverpool for his signature, they're the ones who are going to need to turn up with the PowerPoint presentation and say, look, this is what you can expect. This is how much support you can expect. This is how much in the way of recruitment that you can expect and what kind of players, and this is where we're going to go and outline that out and have some assurances. Now, those assurances aren't worth a hill of beans if he doesn't win matches, but as long as he holds up his end of the bargain and they don't get bogged down with things like, oh yeah, but the performances aren't quite right or yeah, or they're relying too much on this player or yeah, I'm not sure how that whole thing with Kimmich and Goretzka works and, you know, and just getting bogged down in minutiae rather than focusing on just winning football matches, then, you know, I think this is something that they can, in quotes, turn around fairly quickly. But, you know, I I say that in quotes because, like, they are literally the Bundesliga champions. And there's every chance that they will win the Bundesliga this year because Leverkusen have got a ton of work to do still. They've got a ton of work. They have made hard work of Mainz. And I know it's February and I know we talk about winning ugly, but, you know, they really do need to bear in mind that Bayern, I think, there's a good chance that Bayern will be somewhat refreshed by this decision to let go of Tuchel. They can just focus on Tuchel, the coach, and not have to worry about the fact that he's going to be their boss for any length of time. And he can then focus on just being a coach and coaching teams, good teams, to results, which he has done unflinchingly sometimes in the past. I mean, he made sense of Chelsea when they were in, well, not as bad a place as they are now, but in a pretty bad place. See, he can manage situations like this, particularly when the expectation isn't there. And Leverkusen have now got that expectation on there. I think a lot of Bundesliga fans now think Leverkusen will win the Bundesliga. And that is not by any means a given. Not by any means. Favourites, definitely. But my word, there's so much football left to play that I wouldn't bank on it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that the record that Leverkusen set this weekend was 33 games unbeaten in the Bundesliga. That's 23 games from this season, plus uh, another 10 from last season, which, you know, kind of feels it's one game short of an entire Bundesliga season, which means like all in all, this is the kind of team that is capable of putting together a really, really incredible set of games that will not only earn them a title, but could earn them a real 
status as a legendary side were they to do it. But <laughs> there, as you say, there's a lot of football to be played. And when you think about an eight-point gap in the context of you know 11 games remaining in this season, it's a lot more contingent than perhaps we are making it out to be. Definitely. I mean, speaking of much work left to be done, I mean, Leverkusen still do have aspirations elsewhere. You know, they're alive in all the competitions that they entered at the beginning of this season. They are set to face off against the Azerbaijani side, Karabakh, in the Europa League. That should be an interesting encounter. Freiburg, the other German side in the Europa League, they have West Ham in their last 16 tie. Any stray thoughts about either of those? I suspect you might have more about uh, West Ham than Karabakh. Yeah, I mean, I I recognise Karabag's name from numerous Europa League campaigns going sure. back over the last 10 years or so now. They are mainstays in that league. And there are obviously they've progressed to the point where they're now getting into that final 16. So there certainly will not be an opponent that you would want to underestimate. But you would expect, you know, a championship challenging German team to beat a team from Azerbaijan nine times out of 10. So I would suggest that that is something, assuming Leverkusen prioritise the fixture. They may well decide it might be time to bow out of this competition to focus on things, but that, of course, may not be the correct strategy. West Ham are not in a good place at the moment. I think it's fair to say they had a wonderful season in Europe last season. They won the Conference League. That's why they're in the Europa League. But they had a terrible domestic season they get upset pretty quickly out in East London, to be honest with you. And I think they're kind of done with the coach, David Moyes, even though he won them their first European trophy. But of course, as we know, Freiburg aren't exactly in great form themselves. I mean, they had a really rousing performance against Wolfsburg today, but you know, they're what, three defeats in five, is it? So they're not in a good place. So that is a much more open game, I think. And I think the Freiburg fans will enjoy the trip to Stratford. And I think the West Ham fans will enjoy the trip to the Black Forest. So in that respect, it's a cracking tie. I'm not sure I'll watch it, if I'm being honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> it'll be, I mean, it'll be the one that shows up on your, I don't know, whichever broadcaster has the rights to the Europa League in Britain these days. I'm sure that will be the featured match of the day. Oh, yeah. I'll probably have no choice. Yeah, because obviously a British club, it'll be on TNT Sports. Absolutely. You can guarantee that. All right. Speaking of Freiburg, Freiburg are actually in action at the moment against Augsburg. That game is still in progress. We won't bother you with with the score here at uh, at halftime because it's still in progress. And by the time you listen to this, it will be in the books. But looking at the table and where things stand for the team sort of in that area from third down through seventh heading into the match day, Not a lot of wins. I mean, in fact, if Freiburg are able to get past Augsburg, as it looks like they might, they could actually vault themselves into European contention because Stuttgart drew on the weekend. Dortmund lost. Frankfurt drew. Leipzig lost. Definitely felt like a weekend that was not exactly a sign of great ambition from the teams who are just in that sort of second tier of the Bundesliga. I think the place that I want to talk about with you about in most detail is the Dortmund result. I feel like not only because it just happened, and I'm sure you had both of your eyes on it, but it was Dortmund's first loss of the calendar year 2024. It was a loss against a team who kind of limped into the game, which is to say Hoffenheim. This was a game at Signale Duna Park. I know that 
Dortmund and Hoffenheim have a somewhat checkered history in terms of, you know, conflict between Dortmund fans and the club Hoffenheim and the fact that Hoffenheim have gotten some pretty meaningful results over the years, even in Dortmund, you know, against Dortmund broadly. What did you make of this game and (laughs) how much did it sting to lose this one? Because this really didn't feel like a game Dortmund should have dropped. Yeah, no, I I went into the game thinking that, and this is foolish, obviously, thinking, you know, that you were looking at Hoffenheim's form and Dortmund's form that we were, at the very least, we'd get a point from this match. It was a big surprise to lose the game. Uh, We were a tad unlucky. You know, the equalising goal was from a deflection, but, you know, the winning goal was fair and square. As I alluded earlier, there was a big penalty shout, but... I guess that was a difficult one because, you know, actually you look at it and you think, well, you know, his, but his hand is actually by his side. I mean, like that's not really a penalty, I would have thought. But then at the same time, I feel certain I've seen them given in the past. But again, I'm, you know, you say I watch with both eyes. I, I, it is always difficult not to be one-eyed when talking about Dortmund. So listeners may take a different view and that's completely fair enough. I mean, I guess the guy I want to talk about the most in this game was Maximilian Bayer, who I thought was tremendous. I mean, he's having a terrific season, having a great breakout season in the first division for Hoffenheim. And there's rumblings that he might even make it into the Euro squad for Germany, which would be, yeah, I think that that'd be well worth a punt. And I thought he was tremendous. Oh, yeah. Again, he got a little bit lucky. Well, he got actually quite a lot of bit lucky with, with his first goal. But, you know, he deserved that luck and he played really, really well. And, you know, I wouldn't hesitate to say that he was a difference between the two teams. But certainly when you were looking at him and then looking at Fulkrug, I think who had one of his admittedly rare, poorer performances. You know, he certainly deserved to be on the winning side. So, you know, great result for Hoffenheim and an opportunity for them to turn around their form. And they are still in very much in the conversation for European places if they want to be. So maybe this turns things around a little bit for them. And I think Dortmund would just make too many mistakes to really warrant, you know, getting any kind of result from that. So I'd have to say, although it was annoying, I don't think it was unfair or unjust, unless you think that the handball should have been a penalty. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I mean, Hoffenheim came into this game, as I said, on a pretty poor run. You know, looking at their, like, little, you know, performance over the last 10 games chart that you see on, you know, Kicker or a number of other websites, like, (laughs) there are no wins other than the one that they just got against Dortmund. But it's very interesting you say, and and you're right, that they are still within shouting distance of Europe. I mean, the fact that they could go on such a poor run and still only be four points back of Europe shows how much good work they did early in the season. And if they can sort of get back to where they were, I think that this is a team that still may have something to say. I wanted to ask you just maybe in a broader sense, less in a sort of week-to-week, result-to-result sense with Dortmund. I mean, there's always a lot of conversation about this team, about the scheiss mentalitätsfrage, about the mentality question, the shitty mentality question, or the idea that their defense is just too mistake prone or too sort of boneheaded to really make them a title challenging side, even though they almost won the title last year. I mean, when you're thinking of Dortmund and their sort of long-term trajectory at the moment, the fact that they have sort of pretty consciously tried to shed the image of 
you know, European football's finishing school club and try to get a few more finished products into the squad, or at least mix those in with some of the prospects. The fact that they have, you know, not had very much in the way of active talk about coaching changes over the course of the season. They've pretty clearly gone for a more even-keeled, stable discussion around things. I mean, is this the point at which you should be aiming for an even keel? Is this a level that is high enough for the club to sort of cruise forward at? Or do you really still feel like there's a lot of work to be done to get things where you need them to be? I think, for example, I mentioned Full Krug earlier. I mean, I think that a few years ago, that's a player that we wouldn't have looked to have signed. Wouldn't have touched. I also think now that's no detriment to Full Krug, who is taking full advantage of the opportunity that he's been given. And I uh, love him for it. I think also the same could be said to a lesser extent, perhaps about Marcel Sabitzer as well. I just found that to be a really interesting signing. I mean, great at Leipzig, surplus to requirements at Bayern in a team that needed, frankly, a player that can do the kind of things that he did at Leipzig. Dismal failure at United, but then, well, who wasn't at that point? But yeah, to come with a relatively checkered past coming to Dortmund, that was a surprise. I mean, normally you'd expect them to sign someone perhaps a bit younger, more to the profile as you discuss as that sort of finishing school. Which so suggests that, you know, the policy really is to try and make certain you sign established players, experienced players who can put on a title challenge. And that's completely not what's happened at all. And I am wondering whether or not maybe, yeah, again, that profile of being a finishing school has bitten back on them a little bit now because obviously when every time they come looking for a young player then the price probably goes up significantly because it's Dortmund and because of the reputation that they have. I am very very much in love with what they're trying to do from a club culture point of view. I like Terzic and I like the fact that Terzic is a Dortmund guy and I love the narrative and the romance around Terzic but I don't believe he's a elite level coach and I do believe that Dortmund are an elite level club so I feel that if that were to be addressed and I hate to say it I won't say it out loud but were Dortmund at some point to recruit I think you know an elite level coach then I think that we would see improvements in the results and mistakes being uh, at first better tolerated better managed and perhaps in time corrected but there is an air of chaos about Dortmund, which is very Dortmund, very old school Dortmund. But it's not a patch on, you know, Klopp's Dortmund. And indeed, for a while he was there, Tuchel's Dortmund, who on any other season would have comfortably won the Bundesliga under Tuchel. So, you know, I, I think, you know, to get back to that, I think a lot of the conversation online about Dortmund is from, not dominated by, but there's a lot of people who are relatively new to the club. I mean, such a, I would consider myself new to Dortmund, even though I've been following them since the mid-noughties. But I would still, I mean, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a foreign fan. And I think that a lot of the conversation from that particular constituent of the fan base, they joined the club because of what Klopp did. And maybe they kind of got an idea of the character of the club from those Klopp years without perhaps thinking that, in fact, that's something of an outlier you know normally Dortmund <laughs> aren't like that they're a lot more chaotic and unstable and emotional to do that I literally had to write a book to discover that myself and I hope that that is captured in the book that I wrote which you can still buy by the way so <laughs> give the listeners the title and <laughs> it's called Borussia Dortmund the history in black and yellow and it is available in all bookshops online so so I think that actually the Dortmund we're getting now is Dortmund it's more of an authentic Dortmund you know but if so, if we want to go back to that, now, 
if that results in top four finishes and occasional sort of like dashes for a title and maybe even more occasionally the occasional title win. But then I'm golden. That's amazing. That's brilliant. Given the history of the club and what it has had to endure down the years, this is optimal. Absolutely. But I think everybody understands and feels that there's more. They watch the team play and feel that there's more happening here. So it would be nice to see that potential realised. Just had a quick thought before we wrap things up. It might be <laughs> totally out of pocket. Aki Vatska leaving the club next summer. Mm. Summer 2025, if I'm not mistaken. And I know that Aki Vatska and Thomas Tuchel loathe each other. Maybe once Vatska leaves, it's safe for Tuchel to come back. I genuinely think worse things could happen to Dortmund than Thomas Tuchel coming back. I think Thomas Tuchel's reputation as being a difficult guy to work with is probably very well deserved. <laughs> But and being a fractious guy, I think maybe he could do with a break as well. Take a bit of time. I think that a lot of coaches, even elite level coaches, could do this. Take a few months out, go back to school, watch a bit of football, learn a few things, see what the cool kids are doing, and see whether or not there's anything that they're doing that you're not doing that you should be doing. And you can't do that when you're a working coach because it's just the grind. It's the grind of the, the weekly, or, or if you're a good coach, then you know twice weekly football matches, and then the exhaustion of the summertime and the close season, and then it's back to the grind in pre-season. I do feel that there's some value in coaches taking a sabbatical. I think Tuchel could do that. And then I wouldn't go so far as to say that I would welcome Thomas Tuchel back to Borussia Dortmund, but I would certainly be very open-minded about Dortmund's prospect were he to return. All right. Let's wish it into existence just for <laughs> the drama that might ensue. All right. Let's uh, take a quick break and be back for part two. Well, what do you know? This is part two of Talking Foosball. I am your host, Matt Herman. I'm here with Terry DeFellin. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about you know, the sort of small stuff, the odds and ends that make up the rest of the Bundesliga's storylines from a given match day or a given week, what have you. You mentioned some consternation or confusion or mm, slight ire about handball rules and the confusion that surrounds them in the context of your beloved Borussia Dortmund's loss at home to TSG Hoffenheim. There were actually other handball calls that probably caused a few more waves in the Bundesliga this weekend. In fact, the big one was the conclusion of SV Darmstadt's game in Bremen at the Weserstadion. Tim Skaka scored a last-minute winner. It was like the 97th, 98th minute of play. Pandemonium among the visiting fans before VAR took that goal away due to a handball. Basically, the story on that one was that the poor clearance from the Werder goalkeeper, which went straight into Skaka, did hit him in the forearm. Not an intentional touch with the forearm, but a touch nonetheless. He was able to control the ball through that touch and went on to round the keeper and score. Another very similar situation happened in Bochum's 5-2 loss at Borussia Mönchengladbach. Bernardo would have scored the 2-0 goal to put Bochum up 2-0 in Gladbach. Things took a real turn after that. It was more of a 
sort of penalty area melee situation where the ball ended up hitting him on the upper arm, but it was the player who scored who touched the ball with his arm. It had to be chalked off, as IFAB would have it. We were talking just before recording about where we could sort of take this conversation other than a usual, you know, grumbly, grumbly one about refereeing decisions or or VAR's implementation being spotty or somewhat opaque. How do you feel not necessarily about the existence of this rule, but the fact that (laughs) such rules seem to have a lot of stipulations, a lot of caveats, a lot of, well, actually, with a raised finger sort of feel to them, and the kind of hot under the collar feeling you can get as a fan as a result. Yeah, football is just so bloody emotional again to watch and to play. That I think it needs to have laws and rules that reflect that emotion, reflect the pace of the game and reflect the fact that people do get deeply emotional and affected by these games. They need a set of rules that are going to be as straightforward as they possibly can be so that everybody who is watching the game and playing in the game, you know, as much as possible understands what the hell is going on at, at any given time. That isn't always possible. In fact, it's more of a dream or impossible to reach ambition. But what you do have to do, therefore, is you get your rules together so that you at least try to acknowledge that that's the aim, (laughs) is to make football simple to watch and as simple as possible to play. And what I think is happening or what I think the feeling is, and we're all, I think, conscious of a deepening concern, anger, disappointment, frustration with recent rule changes, is that they seem to be becoming excessively bureaucratic and with too many caveats associated with them that you almost have to have a copy of the rules to hand in order to be able to watch a football match. And I don't think that that's a good way forward for the sport and for the game. And I think that the philosophical problem at the heart of all of these conversations that we have, whether they be, you know, a penalty handballs and non-penalty handballs, whether or not they be purely accidental ball to hand during a goal scoring maneuver, which then has to be chalked off because a goal comes from it. You know, the idea of like in the penalty area, it, it is actually okay in a few instances for the ball to hit the hand, but outside of the penalty area, but in a goal-scoring opportunity, it's not under any circumstances okay. Now, you know, that's the law, that's the law. And I'm not, you know, obviously Tim Skaka's goal was rightly, according to the laws, it was chalked off. As annoying as that is, as massive a buzzkill as that is, as a complete ruiner of the drama and the stories and the great stories and the legendary stories that often get weaved as it is, dims the rules. And so we accept that. But we do probably have to ask ourselves whether or not you know, we're losing something with this. And I am one of these guys who gets really angry with referees, like a lot of people, while at the same time acknowledging that it's a really difficult job and that there is a certain, like for example, in the UK in particular, and I don't imagine it's much different in Germany or anywhere else, there's a crisis with referees. I mean, referees get, especially at grassroots level, they get untold stick, they get abuse. They won't do the work because they don't want to do it, you know. And so it's important that we not, you know, go too hard on referees, which is fine because the people I think who are genuinely responsible are IFAB. I think IFAB have decided that they are introducing different layers of football laws to protect referees 
to protect their jobs, to make their jobs so hard and so technical that they become impossible to replace. And I'm worried that there's a, almost a bit of, of gatekeeping going on here from IFAB. And I think that they are the people who, if anyone, are bringing the game into disrepute with these, frankly, kind of pointless, unnecessarily overcomplication of changes, most of which is to accommodate technology and big tech firms. And the fans have just won an important victory about keeping big companies, big investors, private equity firms out of football. Their next campaign would be to try and get big tech out of football because big tech has its claws in football through VAR and through Goldland technology and through the various different innovations that they come up with and then will then try and sell. And I think it's all, all of that needs to be looked into. Now, I will stop there because I am at the point of putting a tinfoil hat on and I'm going to start sounding like I'm being conspiratorial. And I don't wish to sound like that. I wish to sound reasoned and, and, and not ranting in this instance. But I think that's my point. I think I've just stopped short of that. Maybe not. I'm glad to hear it. And I'm, I'm hoping that my own tinfoil hat, <laughs> you don't hear too much of the, of the crinkle because I, I've got it on as well. I, I'm glad that you went where you went because I agree there is something afoot in football and football culture, especially in the way that fans you know, in Germany have taken it to mean the way that they protested against the sort of financialization of football, which is really what I think the, the protests were about, to sort of keep the world of finance and a lot of the sort of amoral profit motives that the world of finance applies to everything from exerting too much influence over football. And I really think that there is a sort of a social, I don't know if it's a movement, but a, so, a set of social concerns among a lot of people, and football fans are, are just a, another type of people, that the worlds of tech and the worlds of finance are ruining things, <laughs> that they are making all kinds of products, all kinds of services, all kinds of pastimes, all kinds of lifestyles less fun and less full of joy than they used to be. And having overcomplicated rules that are ultimately designed to serve technology or having, you know, any number of sort of media delivery systems that don't seem to be maximizing fans' access and enjoyment to football, but in fact, maximizing investors' return on investment from football, strikes a lot of fans as wrong. And strikes a lot of fans as intolerable. And it, much as, you know, the whole, you know, three or four match days worth of protests with a lot of delays and a lot of stop start and a lot of frustration for a lot of people felt pretty uncomfortable. I'm quite pleased that this past week, the Bundesliga, the Deutsche Fußballliga, the DFL announced that they were scrapping the plan to, you know, seek outside investments from private equity. Because I really feel like the fans, the fans were due for a win. And I think they were mostly right about the things that they were protesting, even if the protest at times felt a little unfocused or a little vague. This was an important step to get a win and to get the people in charge of the football to listen to them. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's been a great week for our side, I think. It's a great week for the fans. And it's been a great week for 50 plus one because... Those, and I acknowledge your criticism about maybe some of them being somewhat unfocused, but those protests would not have been as effective if they hadn't been, were it not for the fact that the fans own over 50% of the football club, because it means that they could do those things. You couldn't do that in England, one, because culturally at the moment, at least English football fandom is just not at that place where they're inclined to do anything like that, but also because like they 
as soon as the clubs got wind of it, the security would be involved and there'd, there'd be body searches and they'd be, you know, everyone would be turning out their pockets and surrendering their, their remote control cars and surrendering their tennis balls and chocolate coins and just like, you know, just stopping it from happening. But the reason why those protests happens is because of 50 plus one. And then the reasons why the DFL has pulled out of this deal is because of those protests. So they're absolutely linked. And the message now is quite clear. I mean, the DFL, I think, are quite serious about the idea of trying to bring in some additional investment, but also try and bring in some additional expertise to try and, you know, they want to catch up with the Premier League. They want to catch up in their mind with La Liga, although when you look at the mess that La Liga is in, I don't know why they would think that, that but they do. And now there's any number of things that they can do around the edges to make the Bundesliga product a little bit closer to that. <clears throat> playoffs, but uh, scrap the relegation playoffs for one. But there are many others. But surely at this point, the time is now to sort of like to sit down and work more with the fan bases, with the supporter groups, and try to come up with solutions and say, look, these are our concerns and these are our objectives. We know what your objectives are. Let's see whether or not we can get something and make it work. It'll be messy. There'll be probably lots of arguments. It won't be very efficient, but it is democracy and it is how it works. So tough. Yeah, I'm interested in where this ends up going as well. I mean, it did strike me, and I think we brought this up the last time we were talking, that like the party line from the DFL even well before these talks were called off, was that we look forward to engaging in meaningful dialogue with the fans over the future. And it, it all felt very sort of half-hearted boilerplate. But I really hope it does happen. And I really hope it does happen not only on the basis that the DFL actually wants to listen to the fans, which it doesn't seem like they often do in any serious way, but I hope that the fans actually want to hear from the DFL too. I mean, if there's one thing that bothers me at times about the concerns of a lot of German, you know, the people from the, the, the so-called Activa Fanzina, the people who see themselves as being the most engaged members of any club and, and the, the sort of fan scene. That's a big overlap with the ultras. It's not strictly the same group of people, but, you know, these are the people who sort of make football a more active part of their identity than a lot of fans. And a lot of times their standpoint, the shorthand for their point of view is, we don't want anything to change. We like things the way they are. Or if we don't like the way the things they are, we like the way things were X number of years ago. And like that sort of like attitude of stasis or sort of retrograde attitude is in some ways just as naive and disappointing as the people who want to bring in money from private equity just because, because everyone's doing it and there's lots of money to be had, which doesn't make it a good idea. I wish for some of these folks from the active fan scene to actually take some of the challenges that the DFL faces seriously. And I don't mean just like, oh, our challenges, how can we make as much money as the Premier League? Because, you know, who cares about that? But I think that there is something to the idea that this is a league that needs to make some changes in order to become, you know, not only more appealing to the global fan, but even, dare I say, more appealing to the German fan, because within Germany, this has also become a less attractive league. Part of that has to do with Bayern Munich winning 11 titles in a row. I mean, I wish that some of these fans would be open to new ideas about how to make the league better in a profound structural way. 
what form that takes, and I think I agree wholeheartedly with what you said about relegation playoffs. I think that should be an absolute first step. And, you know, lest you think I hate all things English, I love, I love the English promotion playoff system. I think all leagues should use it. I think it's great when you have teams three through six in a, a second division fighting to get into the first or, you know, second to third or premier champion, you know, whatever terminology you want to use here. I would hope that if these dialogues happen, the fans are not simply resorting to a kind of conservative intransigence about how they see the future of the Bundesliga. Because I think in some ways, the reason why the DFL doesn't want to engage with the fans is because they have the assumption that the fans are just going to dig in their heels and want everything to be the same or, in fact, be the way it was 20 years ago. And that kind of is a tiresome position for fans to take. And I think the DFL in some ways has been not entirely (laughs) wrong in interpreting the fans' opinions that way. I think that that's a very important thing that you've just said there. And I think that there's an awful lot of what you said there that is absolutely right. I would probably also suggest that there are plenty of people within the fan scene in Germany that do have different views and do have views and ambitions that I think can align with the DFL and with their ambitions. But I think that part of the problem is as much as there may well be that the people sort of like, you know, who tend to control the narrative of the fan scene and can tend to control the activities and the campaigns are perhaps more small C conservative and traditionalist. But also the DFL have to accept some responsibility is that they come up with boneheaded ideas that nobody likes. So there will have to be something. They're not progressive. The idea of people having, shall we say, more modern ideas or ideas that are more sort of like in place in the modern landscape within that fanzine are probably there. They just don't have much of a voice. If you can foster an environment where they do have that voice by coming to them with sensible suggestions, or at least with the opportunity of saying, let's have a conversation and let's talk about everything and leave nothing off the table, then you might well be able to find that diversity of opinion and ambitions that you refer to that you would like to see amongst them. So it may already be there. It's just at the moment, they haven't really got much of a chance because they're too busy fighting and protesting against stupid decisions by the choices by the DFL. Yep, I agree. I agree. And, and, you know, time will tell. I hope that these conversations take place. I hope they go somewhere positive. Okay, that's probably enough for this edition of Talking Football. But before we go, I just wanted to throw out a quick shout out to a football club that might, you know, ring a couple of bells with you, Terry, that has experienced uh, a very positive Bundesliga takeover <laughs> this weekend. Oliver Glasner taking charge at Crystal Palace, steering them to a 3-0 win over uh, Burnley. But, you know, <laughs> you, you, had, you had Chris Richards, Bundesliga veteran Chris Richards, as well as Jean-Philippe Mateta, Bundesliga veteran, getting on the score sheet. Are you feeling a little bit of a Bundesliga joy surrounding your old club? I Can you imagine how ecstatic I was when I found out that Oliver Glasner was going to be the coach? I didn't realise how close he was to that job. I figured that actually he was probably somewhat maybe a level above Palace but I sometimes forget Palace have been in the Premier League for 14 years now and they are actually 
for many good coaches, they're a really attractive proposition. And I kind of forget that sometimes because I've been living with them all my life. <laughs> so I'm delighted. I mean, obviously, yeah, it was great when we signed Mateta. And I was really, I don't know, all the Palace fans going, who the hell is Chris Richards? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, well, I'll tell you a little bit about Chris. And it was great to see him score. Chris Richards has been kicked between being a makeshift centre-half and a makeshift defensive midfielder at Crystal Palace under Roy Hodgson. And I, because I think Glasgow will probably play now three centre-halves that will make Richards the third centre-half with Gwehi and, and Anderson. So that's really good. Obviously, a fantastic result, albeit against 10-man Burnley. So don't let's get, get carried away. But yeah, as a Bundesliga guy, to see my club with, you know, a recent Bundesliga coach and a successful, tangibly successful Bundesliga coach, I am absolutely stoked, as they say on your side of the pond, and I am really looking forward to seeing how he ends up making a complete hash of the whole thing because it's Palace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just noticed, I, I was looking at the lower reaches of the Premier League table just now. Just just the minus 33 goal difference for Burnley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is, they're not even in last place, and they've got th- a minus 33 goal difference. Yeah, what terrible. is going on at the bottom of the Premier League this year? There's a, there's a lot of really bad teams in the Premier League. Don't let anyone tell you that the Bundesliga is an inferior league, listeners. It's just, it's an unbalanced league, but it is not inferior. I will give you, Heidenheim versus Luton, I will back Heidenheim to beat those guys any day of the week. Yep. Any like day of the a week. drum. Totally. Cologne versus Luton, maybe not so much. <laughs> what about Mites versus <laughs> Sheffield United? Mites, oh, well, yeah, oh God, Sheffield United are dog shit, really. They are. <laughs> Mites, I would, I would say, I reckon Mites are better than Sheffield United, certainly. I'm not certain. I reckon Darmstadt versus Sheffield United. <sighs> Ooh, I don't know how anyone, that, I mean, you wouldn't put that on pay-per-view, put it that way. <laughs> That's all for this edition of Talking Foosball. It's really great to be back on with you, Terry. It's something that I look forward to every couple of weeks. Ah, fantastic. Thank you so much. And so do I. I, 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 That said, I won't be here in a couple of weeks' time. I know. But, uh, you know, so see you in about a month or so. And thanks so much, as always, for having me on the show. It is an absolute privilege. Spectacular. Many thanks as well to our producer, Aiden Rantoul. He's always uh, up for doing great work. Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all. 